Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. Today we got a slightly different episode, talking about leadership. And I know a lot of you listeners are very ambitious women who are probably in leadership positions or strive to get into a leadership position. So I hope that this podcast is for you. If you are in a leadership position in your work, or you aspire to be, you might have had lots of preconceived notions on what that's going to look like. Perhaps needing to step into a very masculine energy of strength and power and control. And I hope that today's episode is going to help shift some of those myths of what's going to be effective and helpful leadership, and how you can also cultivate your inner leadership team. When those imposter voices tell you that you don't have enough, you don't do enough, you're not good enough, despite all your qualifications, despite all your training and despite all your expertise. So in today's episode, my guest Wendy Kendall talks specifically about building psychology practices, but this applies also to global organizations or freelancers, anyone who is in a leadership position where you have a team to communicate with. And you want to reflect on who you are as a leader. And that also starts from the inside out. Wendy will tell us today about our inner leadership team, how we can have self-leadership, using different roles and parts of us, and how we can integrate them in a kinder, more compassionate way. So let's introduce our guest. As an associate partner of an international consultancy until 2014, Wendy co-led this company to nearly 1 million euros turnover per year. In her corporate practice, she has worked with over 3,000 global leaders. In 2018, along with her daughter, Ava, she founded the training and coaching company Inspiring Psychology Practices, where she helps psychologists in private practice create businesses where they feel inspired every day and can respond to the string of recent events. Wendy has also been my business coach Uh, a few years ago when I went through some business coaching in her psychology practice accelerator program. That's why I've invited her onto the podcast today to help us understand a bit more about how we can get out of our own way and become the leader we want to be. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Wendy. It's such an honor to have you here considering how you've coached me over the past few years to build the practice that I have today. So I'm really, really honoured to have you on the other side of the microphone, so to speak, today. Well, I'm really honoured to be here and I'm super excited because I remember the kind of um, conception and gestation of this podcast as well. (laughs) So it's really wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, Michaela. Well, I'm really, really, really pleased that you find it. Good to be here because you've been part of birthing the the pause, purpose, play kind of concept and signature system that I've been building over the last few years. So this this podcast has been a brainchild for a long time, and now obviously it's been in fruition for about a year now. 
But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you and, and your zone of genius. And that's a term that I've actually picked up from you, yeah. um, thinking about zone of genius. So let's think about that, about why you're here talking about guru leaders and why we want a different kind of leadership. So tell the listeners a bit more about yourself and your story of why you want to talk about this. So it goes back a little bit. So a little bit of, of my story. Obviously, I'm a I'm an occupational psychologist and I've done that for kind of 25 years or so now. And I set myself up in private practice back in 2003 when I had small children and now they're adult children. In fact, my daughter even works with me in the practice, which is quite amazing, really. But, you know, I, I went through a long, long process of creating a practice and trying to find balance and trying to find a way of having a meaningful practice that also fit with my life and realizing that that sometimes requires scaling up and scaling down your practice to fit with your life. And that was a really important principle uh, for me. As it happens, and I started to do, uh, I, I, you know, I went with loads of coaches. I had lots of mentors. I went on loads of training courses, probably from about 2008 onwards. And over time, um, my colleagues started to kind of pick up on what I was doing, whether it was LinkedIn or whatever, and say, oh, can I catch a coffee with you and maybe pick your brains about a few things that you're doing? And it made me realize that a lot of, you know, as psychologists, we don't get business training and we don't typically, um, we don't necessarily come from that kind of commercial mindset. So in 2018, uh, or in fact, at the end of 2017, I decided to launch a program and it was the first iteration of this program called the Psychology Practice Accelerator. And I remember running the webinar from here in France, actually, and being absolutely petrified running. Like I literally had four nights of stress dreams before I ran the first webinar. <laughs> I was just so terrified. And I was amazed because over 100 people signed up for it. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. But then, it, then the pressure really went on, like, oh, what, what will I do if 100 people sign up? So I had to understand, you know, what was going to be my envelope for moving forward with this program. And fortunately, I had my first three, three trepid um, joiners who are now called TPPA, the originals. Everyone has a kind of nickname in TPPA. And really, the business has kind of grown from there. So now, three years later, um, you know, my daughter is running the business as managing director. I'm the lead coach um, since I'm now based in uh, France. You know, we have people who are helping us uh, with, with other aspects of the practice and it's really growing. And, and, and from that kind of base, and, and then also because we grew through the pandemic and that shifted my perspective on what it meant to have an inspiring psychology practice. And really this, this topic of having to let go of being the guru has come about because we've come to a place with our business and also looking at the people that I'm supporting through inspiring psychology practices and realizing that 
we're on, we need a paradigm shift in how we structure, grow, build the focus of our psychology practices. You know, we really need a paradigm shift in how we are leading those psychology practices. And that really was crystallized in the retreat that I ran for the TPPA guys this year, where we looked at uh, the retreat theme was essentially restorative and regenerative practices. So not just being sustainable, but given what we've been through, especially, and also thinking about what the future could hold, how can we create practices and th- this is for us as psychologists but this could be for any freelancers for anybody in there anyone in an organization how do we create practices working lives that both restore us and regenerate us restore our families restore our f- communities restore our organizations restore our societies and environment and kind of go beyond sustainability to actually healing growth, connection, and rebuilding. And that has just, I've suddenly, I realized that it's been the crystallization of a 25-year journey. So I was kind of excited to speak to you about that. And I'm, I'm really at, the, at a new start within that journey. And I think a lot of us um, talking to our colleagues who are in this field of psychology or therapy, or anything that's to do with helping other people on this journey of restoring their own mental and physical well-being, you know, regenerating themselves, how little focus there's been about turning that inwards mm. for us as the helpers, you know, who's helping the helpers. So I'm, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this today, because I know that we're both equally passionate about putting psychologists' own mental well-being in the forefront. And obviously, we have different ways of doing that, because, uh, you know, we have different kinds of training in our background. So I wanted to talk more with you about leadership as well, which is a forte that you have that I don't have. Um, But before we go into that, I just wanted to really sit with that for a moment that actually we can have practices. If you're a freelancer listening to this, you know, an entrepreneur, you don't do anything to do with helping other people necessarily, but actually what would it feel like to have a restorative, regenerative practice where there's a balance there for you with this where is it is sustainable you know we think about how people have been feeling throughout the pandemic and the recent uh, articles written there about how freelancers are having more and more problems with their mental health as a result of the pandemic so I think there's a space here where we need to help those who are working in these kind of conditions so why are you so passionate about restorative and regenerative practices Um, Oh, why is a very deep question. So first of all, I mentioned there that it was a new stage of a 25-year journey. And right back when I did my master's degree, my master's degree was actually based on natural systems theory. And it was looking at how people within organizations both got themselves into collectively a bad situation, but crucially, how they got themselves out of a bad situation. And the interesting part, specifically with respect to what it means for us now, the interesting part of that research was the understanding that not one person alone can have the perfect understanding of the situation that is being faced. So that kind of 
situational awareness has to be held in a group, in a community. And the interesting thing for me when I'm supporting, for example, psychologists, is that a lot of our training and a lot of our the, the kind of philosophies and principles tends to be towards our expertise as psychologists. And there's a lot of power. We hold a lot of power as psychologists because of that expertise. But the reality is that we can't get ourselves out of situations by holding on to knowledge and power. And that means that if we have a practice that is based around holding on to our seat of power somehow, remaining the expert or keeping ourselves under pressure to always be the expert. And the way that I see that showing up with some of my colleagues and the way that I know it showed up for me in the past and still, and I'm still working on this for myself, is, for example, feeling as though you need to get the next qualification in order to be allowed or able to move forward in helping somebody. And that's not to denigrate the role of knowledge and expertise, but it's just to have us think about how we are negotiating power in our um, relationships and how we're kind of setting up our practices. Are, Are we really sharing, are we opening space for others or are we offering a transaction based on knowledge and power? And so, um, yeah, that's why I started to think about, you know, we, we need to be more open. We need to bring community into our practices more. We need to create more of a circular flow of knowledge and understanding and connection with one another. We need to, uh, and in fact, this, is, this has been a principle of inspiring psychology practices since the start, but we actually need to collaborate across silos and work with people who aren't the same kind of psychologist as we are or even the same kind of practitioner as we are because we, we must bring in those diversity of perspectives. I mean, you know, diversity and inclusion is a really great principle. And I think bringing that into how we run our businesses, how we run our practices means that we can start to move towards a more restorative and more regenerative practice. Mm -hmm. And I guess it also breaks those echo chambers where we are too close to our own opinions that we can allow ourselves to open up to to other other viewpoints, other kinds of information to broaden our horizons. And it comes to mind uh, one of the one of the most important mantras that I've kind of taken away from our work together that you have on a banner, um, one of those green banners that you have in your brand colors. Do you want to tell the listeners about what that says? Yes, the um, at the top of the TPPA group that's in Facebook, um, we have a kind of um, a program group within there. And it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. And that's the, the saying that we've had at the top of the door, let's say, since the start. Yeah, that idea of community, connection, collaboration. 
a lot of C words, but you know, good C words. And I know that you're very passionate about a lot of C words ah. in your, tra- <laughs> your, your training in internal family systems or IFS. So those, those words have been guiding our journey together as well. Actually, that we need to collaborate more as psychologists. And I like that piece of research showing that, yes, we have got ourselves into difficulties as a group jointly in an organization, and we can also work our way out from it as a group. That it's really hard to have that one guru leader trying to lead the way and uh, everyone else to follow. So how do you think of leadership for it to be sustainable, restorative, regenerative, whatever words you want to use? How do you think of helpful, collaborative leadership? Well, one of the things that, one of the experiences I think changed me most profoundly with respect to running the Psychology Practice Accelerator was that I definitely started out with the mindset or the and feeling the pressure that I needed to be the guru. I needed to be the one who knew most and kind of the one to whom people would come to for solutions. And that even, that principle, that idea even shows up in your marketing or, you know, that can end up showing up in your marketing um, and also in how you run the groups. And nevertheless, within TPPA, we have always had a very strong community perspective. And in fact, one of the things that we do in the program is that everybody stays in the alumni group afterwards. So that community is building and building. The reality of that, so two things that really struck me with it. One was the feedback from you guys, which was that the holding space was the most important part. And I struggled with that. I really found that hard to relax into. This idea that you could be a leader in effect by opening a space for others and for holding that space as they worked things out. That you weren't necessarily there to control and manage and impose on that space. So there was a process of letting go of being the guru, the hero, the rescuer, the savior, all of these kind of parts of me in IFS terms that kind of felt as though they needed to take responsibility for what everybody else was doing on their journey in the practice accelerator. And then the other element as time has gone on and as you guys within TPPA have grown is that I've heard teachers talk about this before, which is the joy of seeing the people that they've worked with and, you know, their students in inverted commas, outgrowing them. And that it's true. I mean, I'm, and I've said this to you guys before, I'm constantly blown away by what people create within that space. But I definitely had parts of me that kind of struggled with that initially thinking, they could have just done this without me. So I definitely had parts that would say, you know, they could have done this without you because they're brilliant. Look at how brilliant they are. (laughs) And yet, and, and so within, 
whilst holding that space and whilst being a leader that is that is there to be the con- to to provide a container whilst people work out their things within it and then to to literally share power knowledge space a seat in the community to to help people continue um, to on their leadership journey also is demanding on us and I've seen this recently um, with the with the various leadership reactions for example to people working remotely or working from home and this sense of and you know I still have a corporate practice so I'm still working with leaders in organizations who are facing this change to hybrid working and so on and this this feeling of loss of identity because they're not in control or they don't feel in control anymore and also needing to reimagine what it could look like to be a leader if you're there just to hold space if you're there to be a host for other people if you're there to be a guide or even to be a placemaker and you know in our cultures we have lauded and raised up the heroes the saviors the gurus and we know that these other types of leadership exist but i think not a lot of people have spoken about how hard it is to to hand over that sense of power and to how hard it can feel to um, move from positioning yourself as a guru to actually positioning yourself as a host for other people. Mm. So it's a very different space you facilitate then. And that must be very difficult uh, in your work with global leaders. You see big organizations with a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure, financial targets that have been all over the place due to the pandemic. Is this something that you see them kind of battle against, struggle against, not wanting to come to terms with of how they have to change their format of their leadership? Yeah, and you know, it's a little bit poignant as well. So there can be a tendency, and I know, you know, I have kind of parts that get really excited about innovation and new ways of doing things and possibilities and so on. And and those parts can also feel quite frustrated when people won't change as quickly as I would like them to. <laughs> but um, thinking of those leaders also that have that have struggled with what this means for them. The other element that I have seen them, um, and you've got to kind of hold compassion for them about, is how do I show that I care about people in that sense? So the act of, of being the hero, and of, uh, as I said, you know, it, it, there's an element of, of being a rescuer, being also maybe um, parental towards um, the people that they've been managing or working with or leading. And if they don't do that, does it mean they're failing them somehow? Does it mean, you know, how, how are they showing that they care about other people if they can't do that thing? And it just brings to mind the experiences I also had around how hard it was to trust 
that opening space and holding space for others because it's a it's a very amorphous thing to do having said that as psychologists we do that all the time and as friends and family and parents and we do that a lot for others but it's not a big showy thing that we do but it's fundamental when we hold space for others so yeah they there has been that sense of you know maybe I'm not doing what I should be doing and I'm also not caring for people as I should be caring for them if I'm not doing that hero thing if I'm not being the guru anymore the go-to person who's there to look after everybody Mm. must be difficult because that changes their role and their identity and as you were speaking earlier I was I was thinking about the parallels between the experience you had with the TPPA watching you know watching the cohorts grow and do things meet challenges overcome them I've seen just kind of links between that and the parental relationship you know watching our children grow up in front of our eyes seeing how brilliant they are often that feeling of they could have done that without me that actually it's not, it's not our job there to be the hero either it's that making space and, and facilitating and watching and waiting and seeing things kind of unravel in front of your eyes and see what they will do yeah and that can be a really hard thing to do when we have a strong need for control or you know like you said earlier that if we also feel like we're not quite good enough unless we have that next qualification under our belt or just must go on one more training course and then then maybe I will be the trusted expert so it's I wonder if we can touch upon that as well around sort of imposter syndrome and not feeling enough in your, your leadership do, do you come across that with your global leaders with the global leaders I'm just thinking about the imposter element The immediate examples that come to mind have mostly been, I work a lot with um, kind of um, science and technology companies. And so I've worked a lot with women, senior women leaders in STEM. Usually women leaders who, you know, have the PhDs, have done the postdocs, etc. So they've, you know, they've been collecting and, and getting all of the expertise markers, let's say. And then it comes to a point where, Yeah, they, they, they literally can't, you know, they're running global research programs and they can't be the guru of everything. And the, the aspect that has been a challenge for them to let go of, first of all, has been embracing some of, some of the value of the space that they've held for others. So I remember working with somebody who was a global head of research in a certain area and they had set up a a global innovation conference and brought together. I mean, that's a really clear example of opening and holding space for others. And yet when I asked them about that and, you know, it was very much like, well, I'm going to You know, I, I had a team that helped me and then there were all these brilliant people who were presenting there. And so really embracing the value, because that was something that they had done that was that came very naturally to them. But they were struggling to embrace the and really self-reflect on the incredible value that had provided to people. And so just because they weren't necessarily 
providing all of the, you know, they, they just felt that as, well, I just created this global innovation conference. And I mean, I say it and I kind of chuckle because when you say it, it's like, blimey. But, you know, I can understand in a way, I really empathize with them when you, when they say, well, I just created this conference where all these other brilliant people came together. So that's, that's been an example in particular with women in STEM that I've seen. Where I've seen senior men struggle with that has been where they have been um, really seen as heroes, heroes and gurus. And they know, I was working with somebody who's a chief scientific officer, and they, this person knew that people were joining the company because they had joined the company. But at the same time, they knew they could never get round to meet everybody in person. And so that sense of, am I letting them down because they're joining because of me being here and really struggling with how could I show up for them in a different way that was just as valuable. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself though, to be stretched so far that you can be there for everyone in that capacity. And, and knowing that you can't be, but knowing that mm. people want that from you it was a tremendous amount of pressure yeah mm. so no wonder that people are often then kind of stretched too too thinly and despite expertise despite all the qualifications at phd level despite success in you know, creating a, a global conference we still are hooked by these thoughts and these these parts of us like you talk about within ifs to say we're not enough or to say we haven't done enough and that we we need to be more yeah so it can be really hard then, I guess, in your work um, as, as you don't provide therapy. This is, you know, an organizational kind of framework that you work along. But you also have training in therapeutic models like the IFS system. So can you explain what IFS is for people who are listening who've never heard that acronym? So IFS, stands, as you mentioned earlier, stands for Internal Family Systems model and it did start out as a therapeutic model so a guy called Dr Richard Schwartz Dick Schwartz he um was trained in family therapy as a trained family therapist and he started working on this kind of adapted family therapy but working with what he now calls um you know the different voices that show up inside or the different parts of us and he started applying what he'd learned in family therapy to the internal conversations that people were having with themselves. And that whole system has developed and grown over the last 45 years, I think, 40 plus years. So now the model also has non-therapeutic applications, and in particular in coaching, the way that I tend to phrase or tend to position IFS in coaching is, can we help people work with their inner leadership team? So, um, you know, we, we have different voices, different feelings, different emotions that turn up, you know, we're, we're complex people. And Dick Schwartz essentially said, you know, our normal and natural way of being is to be multiple for there to be different parts of us and for us to move forward effectively in life if you like for us to have 
more inner peace, then it would be great if we could get all those different parts of ourselves to work together in a way that is more peaceful, that is that has less inner conflict. And so, yeah, for coaching, we try and help people tune into what's coming up for them. I mean, this happened, I, you know, I've got masterclasses in TPPA that are talking about working with your inner leadership team because the thing I say is there is nothing like the entrepreneurship journey for bringing us into close relationship with all the different parts of ourselves. Being responsible for running a business or running a practice gives you nowhere to hide from, you know, and at the same time, it's, it's endless opportunities and it's endless possibilities. And all of that can be very exposing and very confronting as well. So when it doesn't give you opportunity to hide, it means that, you know, you're facing your, your inner demons, so to speak, but it's also, you know, meeting your inner mentors, the ones that yeah. can coach you, the ones that can guide you facilitate for you so there's a real mix of those voices and uh, we obviously work with that in compassion focused therapy as well I think you and I over over the years realized how much overlap there is between these two models and they're just used in a slightly different framework but having that inner leadership team you know having someone who's on your side when you're doing hard things you know when that imposter voice is piping up or when the perfectionistic part of you saying that's not good enough uh, work harder you know need to reach a higher standard you know, what would the IFS answer be to when those kind of less pleasant voices are piping up? You know, just as you were speaking there, just realize there's another layer of this whole conversation about the guru and the host. So we've been talking about, you know, who is showing up when we're leading something. And we, we've had these guru parts, these leader parts, these... Um, hero parts, the rescuer parts, the savior parts, who get a role when it comes to, you know, they they know that there's a cultural role for them when it comes to leading a business or leading a team. And yet there are all these other parts of ourselves. So there are the hosts, there are the, you know, the parents, uh, you know, all these, this, this whole complexity, this constellation of people, of, of parts of ourselves that we can bring to bear with respect to how we show up in life, but also how we show up in our businesses. The IFS perspective, there is, there is one phrase on the top of the do- over the top of the door, and that's all parts are welcome. And that is very much a leader as host model. So I'm, I'm just realizing how IFS is also reflected in the leader as host <laughs> idea (laughs) and you know it is kind of regenerative and restorative as well so the other major thing that IFS kind of differentiates itself on is this concept of self so self with a capital S and self as you referred to earlier has all of these eight C qualities so oh gosh I I never remember all eight but it and to be fair there's been interviews with Dick Schwartz I've seen he's not remembered all eight either but they're that's okay. That's okay. It's, okay to be, it's okay to be fallible and human. Exactly. We'll see which ones we can piece together to get two so, together. Compassion, definitely in it. So one of the C's is compassion. Connection, creativity, courage. Uh, let me think. Curiosity. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have we said creativity? Yes, I have indeed. Confidence. Connection. 
Connection. Confidence is another. And there's one hiding somewhere. <laughs> but eight C's in total. Um, yeah. So um, that, in a sense, self, with all of those eight C's, is the host. Self plays host in that kind of, um, in that, with that openness, with that curiosity, with that compassion for all parts, with that desire for connection. And that would really be the kind of, uh, let's say, a leadership philosophy, a self-led, in IFS terms, leadership philosophy that would be at the heart of creating a restorative and regenerative practice as well. Hmm. And I believe the eighth C might be calm. Ah, you've got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking about how, how the opposite of calm being maybe frazzled or overwhelmed. So the pressure that's weighing on the shoulders of a hero who's wearing this sort of self-imposed cape of saviour or rescuer, actually there's a lot of pressure leading to overwhelm. And how calm can you be then in your leadership? And if we don't have calm, how can we stand back with a curious mind, observing what's happening, seeing where your, your staff or your employees or the team members need your support and need your input? It's very easy to become reactive rather than proactive. So there's a lot of reasons why having a calm, confident, compassionate, courageous leadership is helpful for the well-being of your staff as well. So I guess that's, you know, from when I think about compassionate leadership, that's the way in that, you know, it's changing your stance towards your team. It's also in your interest as well as theirs. It's a self-compassionate leadership. You are less likely to be burnt out. Definitely. And to add two things to that, and you'll, you'll like this because I don't, the eight C's are a bit well known with respect to self, but Self also has five P's, which are presence, patience, perspective, persistence, and Michaela, you'll love this, playfulness. Yes. <laughs> now, I was just thinking, which one of the three P's are you going to go for? Is it pause? Is it purpose? Is it play? But yeah, playfulness. Love it. The interesting thing with these, um, with this, this P that is around perspective and leadership going back to that research that I did when I was at Cranfield, was, you know, we need to have a shared mindfulness about what's going on here, a shared understanding. And without a shared understanding, we don't have an effective, oh gosh, it's poetry now. I was going to say an effective perspective, but you know what I mean? We don't have, (laughs) we don't have good perspective on the situation that we're facing. And what that meant, so really, you know, talking about quite hard leadership skills now, as opposed to more emotional ones, you know, more the cognitive leadership skills, without perspective, it's really hard for us to make strategic decisions that keep us on track because our, we don't have good situational awareness. And so we make a decision that's based on a wrong understanding. So we have to share our understanding of the situation, we have to bring people into, and we have to bring different voices into our thinking as we lead organizations. Otherwise we get off track. We will inevitably get off track. And I mean, you know, there's been loads of research about groupthink 
And you can even see examples of groupthink happening in leadership teams that are, you know, in the news at the moment, let's say. So that's where the insularity of the group is more important than the, um, than, you know, having a, a good outside perspective where they're looking after the group more than they're looking after, yeah, the information that's coming in. That's what you mentioned earlier about the silos, that, you know, we don't yeah. want to be insular in these silos, in these echo chambers, uh, or, um, you know, in a Swedish term is sort of the opinion corridor being very, very narrow that, you know, that's sort of, you can't raise your voice in there, it will echo around in that sort of chamber. So when we are widening the space, making more space for different voices, a richness, a diversity um, can can flourish. Yeah. So it's really, really fascinating how we think about that. And if we're going to be a little bit more concrete now, because people might be listening and thinking, these are really fascinating terms. How does that apply to my organization? You know, on, what on earth are, are these two ladies talking about? And how do I apply it if I am a leader or if I want to kind of float ideas past my leadership team in my organization? What kind of some tangible kind of takeaway messages we want people to have around what makes good leadership? So one of the principles, there are, there, there's a... There's a lot of information out there that's about what's called regenerative leadership. And I guess a couple of things that you can do um, within, within that model. First of all, it's empowering other people who are not designated. They don't have the tick in the box um, to be the leader, but you empower them to take leadership of you know, whether it's your team meetings, whether it's the workshops you're running, whether it's inviting people who would not normally be invited to the strategy meeting to add their perspective. And not just to add their perspective, but to, you know, not just to be there as a kind of a token, but to genuinely bring their, their knowledge to bear on the plans that are made. There's also something within this kind of living systems approach to leadership, which is called edge effect abundance. And that is literally about how we create, you know, new ideas when we're bringing together people who would never have been in a conversation together before. And so the more that we can bring people in to do that as well, the more that we can connect with people. And this is really where there's an opportunity, I think, with what's happened in the pandemic in that you know, a lot of companies have been considering, well, we need to bring people into the workplace to maintain a coherent culture, a sense that we're all here together working on this, this one objective of, you know, growing this company and serving these clients. There is an opportunity when your teams are working from home that they, and I mean, pandemic aside, they could be also coming into contact with and connecting with people in their local communities that they never would have done otherwise. And that is a rich source of what's called edge effect abundance. So, you know, if they're not working in your office, are they working in a place where 
they could actually get to know new people, make new connections, and therefore harness different perspectives and bring in more creativity. So it's almost like cross-fertilizing, you know, exactly. tapping into different soils. Absolutely. Cross-pollination. Interesting. Cross-pollination is the word I was looking for, yeah. It's really fascinating of how much resistance there is around hybrid working or flexible working. And based on what we've seen in the past year and a half almost, what, what are your biggest sort of lessons you've learned when you've been observing organizations kind of come to terms with hybrid working or flexible working? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that was a surprise to me, I was working with a, a European organization and they had mentioned how the kind of objectives were set in this organization with the idea, and this is common to all kinds of organizations, the objectives were set to make sure that they were busy all the time. And therefore, they were building relationships with people in their lunchtime and outside of work. So maybe they'd come in early and they would go running with one another or they would, you know, go and have lunch together. And when they weren't able to come into work anymore, they then had to put that time where they spent time building relationships into the working time. And that meant that their objectives were suddenly too demanding. And it really made me realize how much we have missed the value and not understood the value of building relationships. How we see it sometimes as an aside, or we only build a relationship if it's got a certain task related, you know, reason. But actually, they have real tangible value and benefits. Um, And we need to really think about our business models when it comes to considering the place. In fact, you know, again, this regenerative leadership um, idea talks about honoring place and community. That means building into your business models the honoring of place and community. So, yeah, that's something that really... I had, that had been the water I was swimming in as well, definitely. Mm. Interesting. And that's obviously one of the things that people have said as a downside of flexible working is the sense of isolation and not having that connection. So I guess the hybrid working of having almost the best of both worlds, being able to work from home on your own terms, honoring the, you know, the balancing of your work life with your private life, maybe meeting other commitments, you know, having more space for children looking after, you know, caring commitments, etc. Whilst also having some time when you're meeting people face to face, having those connections, and the balancing act between the two, that hybrid working does seem to me, like a really flexible way of going forward of being able to let people have a life that has purpose, that isn't just connected to your work purpose. Yeah. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I would even say that if we can shift the language a little bit on that, as we talk about work from home versus work in an office. And if we think about that at a community level instead of an office or a geographical or a physical space level, really what we're saying is work from your home community versus work from your office-based community. So it's not that you're at home. And again, this is, you know, we're dealing with work from home at the side of a pandemic, which makes that hard. But in future, really, 
we're talking about people having connections in their home community as well as connections in their work community. And those connections can be just as diverse and rich when they're at home, in inverted commas, as when they're in the office. Mm. And changing that language makes it a lot easier to see the richness of it, to, to see the value of it, rather than seeing it as a sort of an optional extra. And, you know, I've seen some of the big leaders saying that this is, you know, they're working from home or the flexible working is something that should just be phased out. It's kind of an, uh, you know, abomination, I think that was the word I saw from one of the main Holy moly. leaders. Holy <laughs> moly. Yeah, aber- aberration or abomination are one of those A words that's <laughs> not nice. Um, no C's or I, P's I don't want to... <laughs> no, no C's or P's there. It was, it was an A word. Um, and I think when we have that attitude around it, we're not updating and flexibly adapting to an ever-changing environment around us. You know, we're not the same as we were in 2019. No, exactly. Really interesting discussions, Wendy. I wonder if we are speaking of the P words, we obviously want to weave in our three P words and you've alluded to some of them already. But I want to just hear, you know, thinking about all the success you've had, you know, all the achievements you've made. I mean, I've watched you go from strength to strength in only the few years we've known each other. How do you find pause? How do you switch off? How do you find stillness? And what what does that look like for you uh, on a daily or weekly basis? The purpose bit I find quite straightforward because, because I care about some of these things. So the purpose bit is fine. And even when I was, you know, even before I set up IPP, um, I remember being very clear that one of the reasons we were, you know, living in a a little house in southwest France in the middle of the countryside, even if I found that very isolating, my purpose for being there was to have a wonderful environment for the children to grow up. And I really feel as though that was the case and, you know, the kids loved it as well. So so purpose has been fine for me. The area that I have to work on is definitely pause, but I'm getting better at that. So one of the the impact of last year in the pandemic and all of the craziness of um, you know moving to France in the middle of that and everything else, I did my IFS level three in um, August of last year. And as a consequence or through that process, I had a part of me that just kept saying over and over and over again, I don't want to keep working so hard. <laughs> and mm, it was just this, break. it was this persistent voice I don't want to keep working so hard and I'd already got better at not working at weekends and I had to really start thinking about what does it look like to not work so hard and that meant also you know bringing people into the business and sharing the business with them and getting more support for myself um And then the other thing that I really had to work with was the playfulness part of it. And, you know, part of my reason for doing the IFS work is to also overcome my own trauma history. And I know that I, essentially I worked, I felt, feel like I worked and earned my way out of my upbringing (laughs) And I've basically worked since I was eight years old and I've worked for different reasons, but I 
didn't stop working and I earned my way out. Um, but what I realized after I'd you know done a lot of IFS and done my own therapy and and so on was that you know I had all these really hard working parts, but all of the playful parts were they didn't I didn't even know where they were. I wasn't in contact with any of the playful parts. And so I am still on that journey of relearning how to be playful and finding spaces for playfulness. It's not that easy at the moment in terms of, you know, not being able to meet up with people and so on. So the thing that I have um, in my life now, which really helps me with, they're kind of my teachers, if you like, for the playfulness, are my animals. So I have two dogs, two cats now, one turned up three weeks ago, got a new kitten that just turned up on the doorstep, and four horses, and I can't even believe we've got four horses again, but they, (laughs) you know playing um, and just enjoying them and, you know, getting out in the dirt and the muck and uh, having a silly old time is, you know, my, my animals are now my teachers for that. Yeah. And as observing animals who are so very present and are great at pausing, cats especially, <laughs> you know, watching a cat, they're just so relaxed, like seeing them roll around and stretch their spine out and you know, and then being high alert the next moment and when they need to, and then they switch it off and then they switch it on. I think us humans are um, actually notoriously you know, bad at doing that. We struggle to switch off when the threat is no longer present. And um, hearing about your trauma history, obviously I know a bit about this from before, means that we have an ever-present threat that we've struggled to soften and soothe and let go of. We can have a hypervigilance of looking out for more dangers and then I cannot stop working like this because then danger might come. So knowing that there's probably lots of people listening who know that feeling of overachieving or overperforming because of the fear of pausing and stopping and maybe not getting praise or not feeling good enough and all of these consequences that can come when we've had a traumatic, difficult upbringing where there's been maybe an attachment or a link between our achievements and our self-worth. So it's been really powerful to hear you talk about that so openly that the middle bit is kind of okay. The first and the third P, they're more of a kind of ongoing work in progress for you. So thank you so much for being a fantastic guest on the podcast. I want to just ask you one final thing, which is the, the takeaway we want to give to all the listeners, either a permission you want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them. What would that be? I would say you don't have to fill the space with expertise. Hmm. That's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very difficult to do when the imposter voice says that you must do more things or must be more things, must guide them more. And yeah. all that, you know, hold that, hold that space for them and that will be more than enough. So thank you so much for being a lovely, lovely guest. And I will let you carry on with your day. Hopefully you'll give yourself a break and go out and play with your animals for a few moments. (laughs) Thanks so much, Michaela. It is wonderful to speak to you. I hope you found that interesting, my dear listener. Learning a bit more about how we treat ourselves also impacts on how we treat others. So having a kinder internal voice talking you through your leadership can also help you lead outwardly very differently. If you are actually under a lot of pressure at the moment because you are a leader, 
or you are aspiring to be a leader and you want that next promotion, but the last year has been really, really tough on you, you're not alone. The pandemic has put so much pressure on organisations, especially those with juggling multiple responsibilities, trying to keep their staff well and happy, as well as trying to keep their company's revenue well and happy. It's been really, really tough. If you need a self-compassionate break, if you need a chance to talk to those inner voices of yours, trying to kind of cultivate that inner leadership team of yours, then head over to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break to download a free four-minute audio to give yourself a self-compassionate break. That's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash break. And until I speak to you next time, please do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk and because great work rests on having a great team This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.